0: Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FTP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this week's episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast. This week, I've got three of my own team here, part of WMFDP, Janice Murray is the ex-Chief Diversity Officer of Exelon Corporation and the current senior consultant with us. And Jim Morris is the Vice President of Client Experience and a senior consultant, as well as Bill Prodman is the co-founder of WMFDP. And um, so welcome, all of you. We want to talk today about this dilemma that people have when they look at our firm and they, and they call us and they're confused about why start with white men In the US. So, you know, we do worldwide work and um, worldwide we start with the insider group, but in the insider group in the US is mostly white men. Do you find yourselves having that kind of reaction from people?
1: I definitely have, not only when I engaged with WMFDP when I was the chief diversity officer at Exelon, but now as working as a consultant, when people are saying, well, what are you doing or who are you working with? I give the name of the company, there's usually a a level of surprise that doesn't make sense to me, just any kind of reactions. There's been a variety of reactions, but the reaction has never been, wow, that really makes sense. That's the one reaction I've not heard. And also just why are white guys, like, why would you even include them in this conversation? So it's a little little bit of both. And Michael,
2: to your question, I've... It's not not every time, but quite frequently when I start working with a senior executive who is a white guy and start talking about his executive team and the fact that the executive team is comprised either all or mostly of white guys, Um, I've had on on several occasions them say, well, why do you keep on referring to them as white guys? I said, well, because either most of them or all of them are. And they go, yeah, but we don't think of
0: ourselves that way. Which is a great insight.
3: And, Jim, when that happens with me, I take out the metaphorical mirror and I say, here, take a moment, take a look. This doesn't describe all of who you are, but I hate to break it to you. This is what other people see about our group membership. And that doesn't mean that you're speaking for everybody in the group. That's the privilege of being in our white male group as we have the we can just be Bill and Jim. And I can throw away my social identity, my skin color, my gender, whatever. And I can also then chastise other people for how dare you put me into that box because there's always a negative association related to the words white men, not always, but most of the time there's a negative association in the U.S. because of the historical uh, acts that people of my group have done and continue to do. And so that being able to separate myself from that then puts more pressure on the Janices of the world, whether they're on our team or they're usually, again, in charge of D&I for the company. And then, when what you've told me to do last week doesn't work... I then come back to your doorstep and say, "Give me something else to work on." By the way, you know, make it, you have to work a little better. It didn't work last time, as if somehow that's your that's your you're the only person's job that that involves.
0: So that's that's sort of what people encounter some of the challenges. What what's the logic of starting with white men or getting them involved from the get go? I mean, what what would you say to somebody that's confused about that? What makes how does that make sense?
1: Well, for me, I, I think it goes back to what Jim just said, and this was. I think it just felt so logical to me. I didn't understand why there was a question about it. Mm. In most companies, white men run the companies. Mm -hmm. In most companies, not all. Mm -hmm. And they either have real positional power or they have perceived power or they have access to power. And most diversity and inclusion initiatives are led by women and people of color who generally have no or very little power whatsoever. So, despite all the work that these folks, you know, try to do, and I was one of them. I mean, I bumped into walls for a number of years trying to, you know, figure out how to really drive change. Uh-huh. It turns into a series of programs and things like that, which are fine, but that doesn't. That can is not as effective at changing the culture of the organization, changing the decisions that are made and who's making them and who's impacted, but all of that, that's where the work is, and that is generally led by white men. So for me, it was just a practical matter. The only other thing I would say is if you're talking about diversity and inclusion, inclusion means everybody, including white men. So that's kind of how I looked at it.
0: Jim, what else do you think about that? Listen to this. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, we,
2: I think the the term that diversity practitioners talk about is the, is the diversity paradox. Which, in on one hand, it makes sense to hire people who uh, to to help lead the initiative who have the most experience with understanding what it's to to be part of the group that actually experiences the disadvantage that happens as a result of some of the bias, whether it's around race or gender or whatever the issue is. But on the other hand, they're frequently not in a position where they have the authority to help implement the kind of change, like do what Janice was just saying. So, you know, it makes sense. It's a little bit like, um, you know, kind of trying to hire up, say that the patients make the best doctors. Patients make the best doctors. It it sounds nice, but it doesn't actually hold up when you really look at it and try and figure out how to make it work, because you've got to have the people that that have the control of the system to To be part of the, to not necessarily do it by themselves, but to be part of the process and be at the table with everybody
0: else. You're kind of making a case for the need to engage white men who are going to make a huge effort when they're on board to change the culture of the organization. And we're nervous to do it because we're like, well, I don't know as much about diversity and inclusion as
2: Janice does because I'm a white guy and Janice is a black woman, and so how could I possibly have anything to offer? So we come from a Sometimes a stance of uh, innocent ignorance, just not knowing that we actually do know something about it. We, we, there, there are ways that we can contribute. So it's, it's sometimes with the best of intentions, it just doesn't work out.
3: Well, and Jim, then add to that. Not just the, I'm reluctant to weigh in on any given month. There's some current sort of front-line newspaper sort of some guy, white guy said or did something and stuck his foot in it. It's like okay, I don't I don't want to become the next one of those. I don't want to tank our stock price. I don't want to. So again, I have the privilege of remaining not just silent, but absent of the whole conversation, which then puts more pressure on those that are disproportionately ill affected by the, inequ- the historic inequity. And I think that is a bad, toxic mix that cycles through an organization where the those of us on the team that are all the same always turn to pivot to whoever is the other on the team. Anytime, anything related to inclusion comes up and says, Hey, what do we do now? You know, fix this. Right. And I think if that, if we don't interrupt that dynamic, it's an abdication of responsibility by leadership to first of all, think that they're first of all hiring and retaining the best talent. And really the, re- the retaining of that comes down to you can, you, you fit in here as long as you act, think, talk, and contribute like us, meaning that dominant group. And then white men don't get that, or when they do, they're feeling they're being personally persecuted for all of the historical ills of a group over centuries. When I said none of this is your or my fault, one of our colleagues, Michael Collins, in in our firm talks about race and racism not as a problem, but as a condition that's impacted all of us and continues to impact all of us. It has an impact on me and other white men in ways that are different yet similar to it impacts on eugenies. And it's not about whose pain is worse, but it is about me thinking that somehow racism is a black problem or a brown problem is, is part of that application.
0: Yeah, related to that Bill is this question that as a white guy, something can go bad for me here and it could be career limiting if I lean into diversity my, mind, my my mindset might be that others gain and I actually lose. If I have a zero-sum zero mindset, it's like, well, that's even another reason for me not to, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be the one that's at the short end of the stick now, as opposed to potentially seeing where I might, others might gain and I might win too.
1: Right, right. And it's, it's interesting whenever I hear people, you know, white men especially say, well, if I make a mistake or if I say the wrong thing, Women of color, men of color, white women, we walk into corporate meetings and boardrooms every day with that running through our heads. It's not a new phenomenon (laughs) for us to think, you know, I've really got to pick my words carefully. I've got to make sure I'm dressed correctly. All these things besides just getting the work right. And so that's whenever I hear that, it's like, yeah, that's kind of what we have to do on a daily basis.
3: And, Janice, something you just said triggered another thought for me around when that dynamics is in play, as it often is, and you're sitting with that, and I'm sitting next to you unab- unaware of that. When you actually are courageous, as you almost all- always are, and that you say what's going on for you, I immediately can pivot to, why are you blaming me? which is another way of me controlling the narrative and the way that I ask you under my conditions and my circumstances to weigh in to keep me comfortable. When I say me, I'm talking about not just this bill, but my group. And I think I'm so, and listening to this, I'm I'm back to pivoting saying someone listening to this right now, the skeptic might justly say, well, that's all well and good, but this feels like this is an over self-indulgent, over sort of foray into having white men's feelings feel validated. They need to shut up, get over it and move on. And I've had that conversation and which is again, talk about wanting to silence a group that works fairly effectively for many white men. Cause it's like, okay, note to self, don't weigh in here. I'm just going to let you Janice sort of do your thing. And then I'll talk about you when I'm out in the men's bathroom, uh, but never to your face. Right. And it sort of sucks to use a technical term in terms of maintaining a status quo that goes back to you having to sort of navigate a world that's inherently not even, you're not familiar with, but you have to become adept at in order to become an employed professional. Yes. That sucks, that
0: technical yeah. term.
1: Pretty much. <laughs> Michael, the other um
2: so one of the things that comes out of this conversation, from what Bill and Janice just said, that, that strikes me about it is, it's actually some of the something that you talked about in your TEDx talk. It's like, white men, we, we typically don't think that we are a group. We don't think we have a culture, and we don't see what's in it for us. So we show up and we start thinking, well, gosh, let me. I'm going to be here because I really like Janice, and she's really a, 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 a cool colleague, and I want to support her because it must be a problem she needs help with. Um, which again puts puts whoever the other is in the in the position of being objectified, mm-hmm. and also you know I mean who wants to be part of anything where there's no enlightened self-interest? So if there's nothing in it for me, even even though there's you could say there's a huge moral argument for it, unfortunately moral arguments by themselves don't usually stand up. There has to be something more practical at play,
0: and you know typically we don't we don't see that. We haven't thought about it. It's not something we're aware of. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you, Jim. I also think that not only do we not realize we don't have a culture or a group, we don't realize the degree to which others are having a different experience than us in the workplace. We just think about sameness. We think about even maybe we're raised to be colorblind, uh, gender blind. I just treat everybody the same, quote unquote, not realizing that the impact of doing that is to have everybody assimilate to my culture because i don't even think i have a culture or group and i don't even realize i'm having that impact on, on people so the moment i start to realize oh others have a different reality they're dealing with things i don't have to deal with whether it's women having to navigate safety emotional safety or physical safety in and out of work and business travel it's not something i as a man have to do with other able-bodiedness i don't have to deal with stuff other people are dealing with when i start to see that world it's like okay There's something in the mirror for me to see as a white guy around a culture I didn't realize I had, which is on autopilot. Maybe I need to be out of my head and in my heart sometimes. Maybe I need to stop focusing on action and fixing and being and just connecting with people more. So there's it unleashes new leadership skills in my possible range that I didn't consider before. And then, therefore, I go back and I say, okay, diversity isn't about me losing. Others gain, and I'm gaining a lot too. So I start to see some self-interest and I, I get access to more, more more parts of my own humanity.
3: Well, Michael and Jim, some of what you both just raised bring up two things for me, a dynamic and then another sort of at least reality that I think we need to talk about. And the dynamic is this notion that I've been acculturated in, which is to think of everything as a black and white issue, yes or no, right or wrong, the, and both the, the complexity sort of gets uh, cast aside because I'm either a racist, you know, torch carrying Charlottesville, you know, group member, or I'm this magnanimous great guy that doesn't think badly about anything related to people of color and race and that, that, there's that going on. And then the other thing, which I think really inhibits the exploration of my sort of practice of that is my reluctance to intervene in my own group and my nervousness about not wanting to be cast out of the club that I oftentimes protest when someone tells me I'm in it, the old boys club, because I'm this rugged individualist that marches to my own beat. And so it's an interesting paradox about how my lack of courage, and I've seen this happen for myself and still do at times, it disappears when I'm in a group of white men and they're behaving badly. And I want to do the intervention in a way that is perfect. And as a result, I talk myself out of doing anything. Mm-hmm. And it's embarrassing for me to note that or I'm a, or I wait or I watch this with my partner of 30 years as a white woman, Pam, who jumps right into it. And then I basically let her go there or Janice with you around that. And I, in my work. So this is back to why the focus on white men, my work. And it's not about eviscerating each other. It's about how do I support and, and both challenge other men, white men. And then they do that with me as a way of us helping us to do our work with one another, which then fundamentally changes how I come to partnership with my 30-year partner, Pam, as a white woman, with you, Denise, as a woman of color, professional, et cetera, et cetera. That work is intimately connected. And I'm amazed of how I've been taught and rewarded to keep them disconnected and then to talk myself out of even doing anything.
1: The the thing that came up for me, Bill, when you were talking about intervention is You know, programs and events and cultural events and all that is great. But my observation is people judge the inclusion, the inclusivity of their environment oftentimes by the action or inaction of the leader. And so it's one thing to say we're going to have an environment that's free of all sexual harassment. And then it's another thing for, a conversation to go on that where a leader needs to intervene and they don't. And what that says to the woman is, okay, you're, you're saying it, but I'm still not in an environment where I can feel safe or I can feel like I don't have to hear these things any longer. And so not taking that action says volumes more than staying in front of a room, talking about how important diversity and inclusion is to you. That that's, That's the thing I think that this work does. It gets not only into the head, but it gets into the heart and it can cause, you know, something will happen. And I've seen this where the leader who has gone through the lab, gone through, well, I'll say a lab because I saw it specifically after a lab, but I'm sure the summits too, says, you know, I heard this comment and it just didn't sit with me any longer. And they took an action. That's the shift the change Mm -hmm. that can happen when your perspective and your experience expands. It's not okay anymore, and I have to say something. And that sends a very different message than, you know, the talking points that your corporate communications person gives you.
0: What did did that feel like, Janice, as a person of color when a white guy
1: actually started doing that? I, I could go on and on, but I won't. About you know examples of people really and and it might just be little things one leader said to me He said, you know And he lives in an urban environment And he said, you know, I don't even read the paper the same way anymore When I see when I hear the term high crime neighborhood I think gee, what do the people in that neighborhood look like? And is it really a high crime neighborhood or is it just because of what those people look like? I mean, those are the questions he started to ask. He started talking to his team, like for real, and really listening to them about their experience working as part of that team. And it wasn't that he was a bad leader. He was actually, he's a really good leader. But he started listening differently and listening for the, yeah, I know that the policy says this, but this is what I've experienced. And that's what people, that's how people evaluate whether they're included or not. It's not something written on a piece of paper. And it wasn't because he walked out of that three and a half days with every single answer in his head. It was he, he was no longer afraid to ask the question or to become curious and just say, okay, wait a minute, this feels different. And maybe I don't have the whole story. And that, that can really start, you know, kind of shifting things.
0: And I imagine that removes a burden off of you as a woman of color feeling like okay if somebody's going to see these things i've got to be the one to point them out and i got i've got to I've gotta be the one to educate white men so you know if somebody listening to this recording might actually who's confused about why start white men it actually the engagement of white men actually removes a burden off of others in the organization
1: it it does and i'm sure that many who have been in these positions to lead these initiatives you know, may say the same thing. I mean, you're I, I felt like I was constantly having to measure my words because there's the balance of I need to build relationship and trust and I also need to call stuff out. Mm-hmm. And so it was constantly weighing, like, okay, I'm gonna let that one go because that's not a hill I wanna take. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so when there's another voice, and you know, the the white Man's voice, especially in a leadership position, is going to have a different level of power and impact than my voice. So it does. It kind of takes it off of you, and you know, you know there's someone else that there's an ally there with whom you can partner.
0: I, I appreciate all the perspectives. and um, as I think about people listening to this and I, if you, if they're thinking about this kind of work early on, I think one of the most important things uh, a DNI leader can do is actually find a white male executive or some layer that can, they can build sponsorship. Because if they introduce the focus on white men, their credibility is kind of at stake, has been my experience. If they find a way to onboard a, a one or two white men who get this, at why this is important, they can actually stand up to their peers and say why it's important, and they can be the messengers. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that yeah, um
2: well, Bill said talked about it earlier indirectly or directly, but it's like um the way we sometimes refer to it is about breaking rank, and there's a concern about you know, what if I do this, what's going to, am I going to be, now am I I going to be on the outside? You know, I mean, the term we use around insiders and outsiders comes into play. We talk about outsiders are the people in a system who don't don't necessarily have some of the advantages that the the advantages or benefits that are invisible and unspoken and usually unwritten that people have and insiders have those advantages. We would argue in our construct that White men in the United States tend to have the insider advantage, and and um, you know if we start really challenging the status quo in a system where there's things are pretty broken out, then it really then all of a sudden I risk potentially being going from being losing status and becoming part of the outsider group. So there's some risk in it for men, and you also you're, the other thing that happens, of course, is we're we're seen as being the PC police or trying to be politically correct to fit in and get promoted. Um, we're seen as not being very genuine in our approach so um, you know there's some there's some courage there in that work for men to step into that world and part of it for me is that it was learning to step into to looking at people who are different who I work with and being able to say listen I don't really know there's something obviously going on here I don't know what it is and I'm not what's really sure what to do about it but I want to be part of the solution um, sometimes that's a good first step versus walking around on eggshells trying to avoid ever being found out for, being, for not knowing.
3: Jim, some things you just said that, again, really resonate for me is this, in a world that sets everything up as either left or right, right or wrong, there's a fear that I have lived with and I see a lot of white men live with given whatever's happening in the popular vernacular, whether it's the post-Me Too movement with Harvey Weinstein, that if I cop to how I have uh, colluded and participated in the denigration of women, as I have in my life, uh, growing up as a kid, that I'm somehow going to be lumped into the Weinstein end of the spectrum. If I show some of my rough edges around my ignorance around race, you're going to confuse me as I'm like the junior varsity, tiki torch-carrying Charlottesville team. And so as a result of that, I'm afraid of being branded at the end of the spectrum that is the most egregious part of this, and it continues to keep me silent. When the reality is is that I am a byproduct of an environment given my age, the, where I grew up, my socioeconomic class upbringing, my skin color, my gender, that has inculcated in me a whole bunch of misinformation about who should do what and when they should do it. And then it's been glossed over by this is America and if you just work hard enough, everybody can achieve. And then by the way, my two black friends who made it are the proof that Janice, you're just sort of using your race uh, as an excuse and playing the victim card. And while that's not spoken, that's sort of acting in the background as sort of a low grade fever that keeps me from ever getting healthy and intervening in my own health you know, protection system or get the wellness program. It's a bad, it's a bad combo and it stays in place because I'm in that insider group. Then to your point, Michael or Jim about, I don't want to break rank with my group because I don't want to get tossed to the, to the back of the line or whatever. And I, and, and what I just, just articulated, I'm not even aware of this, but I feel it like, so it's like, I'm afraid I'm going to be silent or I'm going to wait to get cues from Janice. Like, did I do that right? Which I can only imagine is not only frustrating and fatiguing, it's infuriating over time, over and over yep. and over. And at some point, then you bubble out, you bubble forth and say, knock that stuff off. I was going to use an expletive. And I'm like, what's the matter with her? Why are you so angry? So all of a sudden, it's not about me. It becomes projected onto you. And you've got to then go back to managing, sitting into my world. It's a bad cycle.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the, the whole idea of, you know, stepping into the space of having to be really cor- courageous and perhaps breaking rank. It is it is scary. And there are times, though, that you may find that or the white man may find there are other allies that have, that are especially that mid-manager level that's been waiting for somebody, you know, to to, to speak up, to kind of open the door. You know, that's because that's kind of tough. You know, you're not you're not at the top of the food chain, so to speak. And so it can be really challenging. And you know, and my question was always like, what kind of a leader do you want to be? Like, what do you want to be remembered for? And sometimes that means going in places that you aren't always comfortable going.
0: Yeah, and you're not going to leave a legacy of inclusion or inclusive culture if you're just avoiding that whole topic. And, you know, I, I, one, one thing you said is, what do you want to remember as a leader? I think the point is, this isn't just about diversity and inclusion. This is about leadership this is about uh, as one, one of our clients, you know, we've been partnering with for like 13, 14 years now, they said this early on, they said, this is a leadership gap. There are some, there are some blind spots that we have that prevent us from maximizing how to synergize with each other. And they actually now having done that for as long as they have, they actually have their own data that says, you know, when, when people go through this kind of deep learning journey, their direct reports rate them six to 12 points higher in trust and integrity and diversity. And they're like, now we're getting somewhere in our culture. This is like a a long-term process. And it's like giving people a chance to be on their own learning journey, giving a chance for them to model that um, or is a critical piece.
3: Well, Michael, with what you just said, because I'm sitting here, I'm trying to think about the person listening to this thing and maybe the sort of willing skeptic, it's like I still I hear it, but I still don't I still don't get this why we need to start with white men. This feels like a, an over sort of focus on a group that already gets all the attention. They may not be another white man. It might be a person of color, white woman. It doesn't matter for me. Us to be able us to have this conversation is proof around the power of the work that I continue to do with myself and other white men, which then fundamentally ch- changes my work across gender and race rather than not doing that work with myself and my own group. And then showing up at your doorstep again, Janice, and to say, I'm reporting for duty, tell me what to do this week. That stuff's gotta stop. It's not sustainable. It's not healthy. It's just not okay. And we can do better than that. And that's the role of leadership is to not is to be the change they wish to see and to take the risk and the you know, part of that is about being vulnerable, like I'm scared about having this conversation about race because I'm afraid that you're gonna lump me into the Charlottesville or the Weinstein um, thing around gender. I need to just acknowledge wherever I'm at and then to do that with my group, as well as then to have that carry on to conversations across race and gender.
2: Yeah. Bill, you said something. I was talking about you started with, Michael, just about, you know, t- we don't sometimes know how to do this, and it really is a leadership challenge. And, if, you know, the other thing that's interesting about, to me about this in terms of organizations in the United States is inclusion is a leadership competency that many organizations don't even look at. They're just starting to look at it. And you know, back to Bill's point about what, what would the listeners to this want to hear? It's like, well, here's the bad news. Inclusion is hard work. It's not, you know, ex- exclusion is a piece of cake. You just keep on working with everybody who looks like you. You know, inclusion means actually kind of wading out in the deep end of the pond and saying, let me figure out how to do this because I don't necessarily have all the answers and I'm used to having all the answers. So there's a level of humility that leaders have to develop that's tough and hard to find.
3: Well, even Jim, I again noticing, I had this conversation recently with a prospect client about his struggle with connecting the dots between the diversity and inclusion work that he feels compelled that he's supposed to do and the leadership work. He doesn't see the connection. And I said, for me, there's synonyms. They're one and the same. This is only leadership work. And I'm not talking about the top of the house. I'm talking about everybody is in a leadership everybody, role, right? formally or informally. So yep. I, I use
0: the words interchangeably. Yeah. Any last thoughts you want to leave folks with as we wind down?
1: One, one thing that I, I you know, we've, we've talked a lot about kind of, you know, navigating the the waters and how, you know, challenging that might be. The thing that I would also just add is the way that we do this work, we do this from a skills-based perspective. So you are at least, Being introduced to skills and behaviors that are concrete. This isn't just kind of blue sky stuff, like you walk and you're supposed to know this. But there are ways that you can actually look at specific behaviors and determine what are the things that I need to work on. And and there's all kinds of things you can do. I won't get into that, but I, I feel a need to say that because so much of this work can feel very kind of woo woo. This is really about what are the leadership skills needed to engage. And charge up your, your workforce regardless of what they look like and the thing that I love about this is it's skills based It's not like you know you got to figure it out it's it's laid out I think in a way that that people can f- learn from it and begin to develop um, the, the skills.
2: And to add to that Michael and Denise is um, and notice in this entire conversation none of us have talked about the fact that white men need to be fixed because that's not what this is about it's not saying that they're the problem. Let's go figure out how to fix them, but about how to help them bring their skills and their talents and what and what they're learning and what they need to learn to the table along with everybody else not only not only but along with I think mean, it's important to remember we're not this is not a a deficit based approach that says let's go find the
3: and let's go and, find the know, problem
2: un- child and
3: unfortunately, fix I'm really glad to raise that point unfortunately I think. The experience for a lot of white men in North America is the exact opposite of that.
2: Absolutely, Just that they've
3: experienced yeah. that their role in this effort is to be the token. It's all my fault. Go ahead, I can take it. Um, right. Blame me for everything that's happened in the last four or five hundred years, and then yeah. I'll hopefully the time will pass and I'll get back to the what I'm missing from my my work. That disjunction
2: so, uh, is used. Show sure to- up sure for a session and apologize. And, yeah, right. Yeah. Human <laughs> pinata. Yeah and get the heck yeah, right. out of Yeah, the there. human to right, 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 I said
3: earlier, I said, none of, this, none of this is anybody's fault. This is not my fault. It's not your fault. Janice, it's not your fault. And yet here we are having to execute and engage and partner in a world where the same behaviors done by two different people get really reacted to in two very different ways. I had this conversation yesterday with a younger colleague, female, who basically was telling me that she, she is accused of having an agenda. And that that was a negative. And I said, that's all I have is an agenda. That's what I do with my work. But I was noticing the privilege I have of being in that insider group that my agenda does oftentimes does not get misconstrued as there he goes again. Oh, it does with some people. But there he goes again because <laughs> I'm seen as passionate. I'm seen as magnanimous. That's a renaissance guy. You know, it's, and anybody else that's not in our group that does the same behavior can really get a very different reaction that needs to change. That's my work with my group. Then that person has their work with their group. And then we have our real work with each other.
0: Well, I I think in, in addition to coming in, fearing being beat up or being the human pinata, I see white men come back, come incredibly grateful to have some blind spots pointed out incredibly blank blank grateful. Wow. I can actually have conversations around topics. I never dreamed or thought I could have in the workplace. I feel more connected to people. I feel more connected to myself. I have more permission to be in a learning journey and to make mistakes. You know, the research on our participants, 33% Thirty-three percent higher listening four months after the learning lab. Coworkers noticed that. I mean, that's a value for customers. You were talking about specific skills, Janice. That's a that's a very powerful skill. That's. I mean, we've actually it's fascinating that um, wives of some of the white men have sent thank you notes to the <laughs> to the. <laughs> what did you do to? What happened to my husband? I don't want yeah. the. Old, I don't <laughs> want the old husband back. Thank you so much, more present, yeah. So. Um, I just want to say thanks to Janice, to Bill, Jim. uh, Great to partner with you and to be able to have this conversation.
1: Thank you. Likewise,
3: conversation is never done, is it? No. Always appreciate the opportunity (laughs) to have it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFTP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.